Today's show is brought to you by Ericsson. Have you ever wished that you could download an entire HD movie in seconds? Or maybe you wish your battery could last for days or even years. Well, Ericsson is about to change the game in cellular networking, which is going to make that stuff possible. They're going to bring 5G to you. To find out what the future looks like, go to ericsson.com slash 5G. That's ericsson with two S's dot com slash 5G. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm speaking to you from Vox's New York headquarters. But I'm just going to be here for a minute because we're going to go live on tape to Joe's Pub. This is a uh, show I did this week. We talked to Michael Barbaro. He's the host of the New York Times mega hit podcast, The Daily. He's great. The audience is really great. They loved hearing him. Um, you will like hearing from him, too. So let's go to Joe's Pub right now. Who here listens to podcasts besides Recode Media? Who listens to the New York Times The Daily podcast? Uh, good news. We have the host of The Daily's podcast. Michael Barbaro. Come on up, Michael. Here he is. Hello. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much. Peter, how are you? I'm nervous. I mean, Samantha B. Sorry. Cable TV. But we did tell you in advance. I know. Listen, we also, I got a bone to pick with you. We talked. We said, we don't want to overthink this, but you asked me, what are you going to wear? Yeah. Because I'm going to dress very casually. And I said, I'm wearing a jacket. And you said, great. And now. What? Suits a dapper tie. No, you look great. Oh, thank you. I would like the guests to sort of dress down a little bit, but, but thank you for coming anyway. Thank you for coming on, a, on an evening. You normally are working often this time, right? Yeah. Putting the show together? We had to rush the whole show. We had to change the whole news cycle just for you. We had to ask the president not to make any news. Thank you. We were talking about this uh, uh, backstage. I we heard. were talking on stage with Sam about sort of what the bar for a Trump story is. It changes. You've, you've changed. So Twitter fight with Bob Corker. Corker, no didn't, Corker didn't make it tonight. Broke up with Jeff Flake. Jeff Flake broke up with him. Does Flake, that make the Flake cut? Flake made it in. That yeah. made it in. What else is in tomorrow's podcast? So tomorrow's podcast is fascinating. It's a conversation about what really happened in Niger with those U.S. servicemen who were killed. And this is kind of classic daily. Uh, what we do is we, we took the concept of that news conference in the Rose Garden that the president had last week, where the question from a reporter was, could we ask you to talk about what happened in Niger? And if you listen really carefully, the president was asked to talk about what had happened in Niger. And he went on a tangent and took it to the subject of his phone calls to servicemen and began right. to compare that with President Barack Obama and made a bunch of dubious claims about that. And we just rewound the tape and said, what if we start that news conference all over again and answer the original question from the reporter, which was, can you talk about Niger? And we asked the question, what really happened there? And my colleague, Colleen Cooper, who covers the Pentagon for the Times, talks about that. And like any great daily segment, it has an idea embedded in it, which you can ask me about. So, I do want to ask what they did, but I'm just I'm running through my head. So is this going to be a New York Times story as well? And then you guys no, are going to talk great, about it? Great question. Thank you. This is... <laughs> It's very funny. When I ask questions of guests and they say great questions, yeah. I can't tell if they're flattering me. I find usually <laughs> when someone says great question, they They're mean, stalling. Yeah, I don't want to answer your question. Yeah. Or Such a good it's question. It's a polite way of saying fuck you. <laughs> I, I don't know about that one. Um, by the way, that was a great I question. I get that more often. Thank you. All right. So, um, no, and, and The Daily, which is a you know, podcast that's now seven months in at The New York Times, was... I think when we envisioned it, it was going to be pretty consistently teeing off and tethered to a story in the New York Times. But as we evolved, 
and as we did with this episode for tomorrow, we started to tap into the wisdom of Times journalists beyond what they might be writing for the paper. They are in and of themselves mini newspapers, mini New York Times on their beats, who know their subject so well that you can draw them in and have a conversation about something that they're not writing a story about. And that's what we did with Helene Cooper. You know, tomorrow she has been investigating what's happening in Niger. She goes to all the news conferences. She's talking to sources and having constant conversations. And she has a way of talking about it as a human being, being curious about it, admitting what she doesn't know about it, that makes you have an appreciation for the story as well as the storyteller, the journalist, that I think often is missing from a newspaper story. I think it's fascinating. The New York Times, paper of record, mm-hmm. right, now is encouraging its journalists, or some of them are, are doing it, and going out and saying, this is a story I have not reported in the New York Times, right. first of all. Two, I don't know a lot of what, I don't know a lot of the answers I'm talking about here. This is not the definitive version. Mm-hmm. This is a sort of almost my working notes. Right. Was it a big culture shift to get them to do that or do they want to do it right away as soon as you offer them the chance to come in and sort of talk about something that you have not yet figured out? I think I want to be clear. Oftentimes they have figured something out, Uh but sometimes they're in the middle of figuring it out. I mean, we're trying to talk to someone like Peter Baker, who's a White House reporter at the Times, or Maggie Haberman, a White House reporter at the Times, in the middle of their working day. So their thoughts are are evolving. Their journalism is accumulating. Um, The biggest evolution, I would say, was the organization recognizing, and I think it had, I think that's why The Daily exists, that your relationship with The New York Times was, for the most part, predicated on this idea that tablets were being handed down to you every morning, and they were very authoritative and an omniscient in their voice, and that, that our, all of our relationships with journalism are really changing, and that the idea of omniscience itself is kind of held in doubt and that it may not ever have really existed, that it was more of a conceit. And so the Daily says that journalism is this fast-evolving thing, that the journalist can say what they know and say what they don't know and talk very openly about their process. It creates a lot of transparency that I think people crave right that's now in this That's a really moment. big shift. I mean, there's, that's, we've seen media evolve that way for a couple of decades, right, since the web in right. various forms and on Twitter and Facebook. But the New York Times in particular and a handful of other papers said, we're not just going to let people just sort of randomly put stuff out. We're still no, the and New York we Times, and, we, and we, what we do is meaningful, and the fact yes. that it's in the newspaper is a thing. And so the idea that now that's sort of leaching out into other vectors is, is really interesting to me. Yeah, and just to be clear, I mean, this is, of course, fact-based journalism, and it is authoritative. I think the most authoritative journalism in the world. The way that the Daily interacts with that journalism is to let the journalists talk about it in a really kind of vulnerable, transparent way. Can we talk about how you got to this? You were, you were been at the paper, what, 11 years? Yes. Did retail, business reporting, a lot of politics reporting. Retail, yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't I know, I'm not going to ask down. you where you got that. Last summer, you're covering politics? You're covering this is the subway? Yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention, in case you guys are hearing this now or later on a podcast, we are oh, above pardon. a transit hub. So that's maybe a D train? I'm not, I'm not that good at it. Four, five, six, thank you. <laughs> Very good audience here. Did you raise your hand and say, I would like to try a podcast? How, no. how did that come about? Uh, I was asked to do this. In fact, it's a long, complicated story. I was, I was not the first person to be asked, but I was asked to do, uh, to do podcasting at the New York Times. For, in the first iteration, it was a campaign podcast uh, that was created by two people in the audience here, uh, Lisa Tobin, Samantha Hennig here. Thank you for recreating my career. And... The Times got very excited about audio, hired some of the smartest people in audio, and the idea was that we could 
quickly create a podcast that would cover the uneventful final three months of the 2016 presidential campaign. And we rushed into that, and we had an epiphany right away, which was that... But wait, even before you get to that, right? Sorry, am I it's, racing? It's this historic election. They're it all is. historic elections. And now it seems evident, oh, obviously you'd want to get into podcasting. Mm -hmm. But last summer, podcasting was still sort of a new idea, and certainly the New York Times having an authoritative podcast. Sorry. was a new idea. Did you say, well, no, no, I want to do the, the stuff that Maggie Haberman and everyone else is doing? I was, I was doing, first of all, no one does what Maggie Haberman does. So I just want to lay that out there. Sure. She's a totally unique. Stipulated. Genetic breed. Um, <laughs> I was covering the campaign as, as a writer of live debate coverage and election nights, primary nights, um, kind of moments and investigations, including of, of Donald Trump. And the idea was that I would split my time as a reporter and a podcaster. And as anyone will tell you in podcasting, yep. um, it's very time consuming. And so the balance shifted very it's quickly. the way you do it. To audio. We just kind of knock these things out, actually. <laughs> so it, it wasn't you saying, oh, I'm going to give up the thing that I like or the thing that has stats. No, I'm for a while, it was, the best of, it was the best possible scenario. And if you can do this in your work life, I highly recommend it to take the risk of doing what, what you're doing and trying something new simultaneously. And that was what I was able to do. And then when did you guys say, oh, this should be a daily podcast and we'll call it the daily? When the run-up started, the epiphany that I was starting to refer to, I think when the subway came down, was that the, uh, the Times reporters coming on were a bit like the hosts on the Today Show or on any of the morning shows, you know, the kind of family units of mom, dad, son, daughter and you have your familiar relationship with them. Suddenly we were realizing that if you had these highly compelling authoritative Times reporters on, whether it was Maggie Haberman or Nick Confessori or Patrick Healy, on and on, people wanted to hear them. They wanted to hear them every week. They wanted to imbibe this insider understanding of the campaign, this, you know, in some cases, decades-long authority on the subject of the candidates and we realized we could recreate that twice a week. And then after the campaign, I think the daily was the next natural extension. If we, can, if we can do this twice a week and we can develop a significant audience, can we do it every day? And that was a crazy leap. And I heard S Samantha say how great it is to be once a week, and she's probably right. Yeah. How great it is to be once a week, um, because putting out a daily show is incredibly taxing. Let's talk about the, that work schedule. So sure. you start what time? We start in the morning at 9.30, which is when the New York Times still has probably its most kind of ancestral, like old school meeting the, in the morning, the, the news the meeting. That's schedule, right? And they meet what and talk about What is going to be in tomorrow's newspaper? Exactly. Or on today's website. or on, you But know, that's the premise of that meeting. That's the original premise right. of it, yeah. Now it really is a web-based meeting for the New York Times on our website. And we start there, and we begin to brainstorm and collaborate. So you sit on that guests. meeting and say, oh, this is One what of everyone's the working on. of our team, yep, sits on that meeting and we figure out what's in the news, and then we tackle one subject or two subjects, and we find a reporter at the Times. Oftentimes we have to contend with massive time differences. Reporters in, you know, at the border of Myanmar uh, need lots of advance notice. And the one thing I'll say about my colleagues, and it keeps blowing my mind, is just how game they are at no matter what time of night it is to do these incredibly complicated things. If you've ever listened to The Daily, what you'll never know is how many reporters get on the phone with one receiver to their ear, and then an iPhone to the other that is turned on airplane mode, and they record directly into that one, and we call it self-syncing, and it means that the quality sounds really, really high. And people do that under bed sheets and behind curtains and in all sorts of places, 
in and by all the way, sorts of countries. They do it for a long time, right? Oh, for I mean, we can talk to people for an hour and a half. Right, because it's a 20-minute show, and you guys are very deliberate about yes. that. But I was talking with Jim Rutenberg. I had him on for like five mm -hmm. minutes on one of my shows. I said, oh, it's much easier. I did the daily thing. And it was two hours. <laughs> I had to talk, literally. Um, yeah, we are very meticulous. Yeah. And to get 20 minutes of really high-quality audio, um, it can take a lot of recording time. Are there stories that you want to do? This is timely. Let's do it. That reporter is not available. That reporter is in a different time zone. Yes. Can't be reached. Yes, that happens. That's a real bummer. And so you go to story plan B, plan or C. Or you go to a different reporter. Or you get, we get really creative and we decide that we can tell the story through a primary actor. You know, if we can talk to somebody like Eric Lifton, who's a remarkable colleague of mine who investigates the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And we can marry him with a woman who has spent three decades at the EPA, but has just quit because she's unhappy with the Trump administration policies. And those two things together will make a show. So when a reporter's not available, we'll figure out if, a, if an actor in the story can talk to us. And oftentimes that is as compelling, occasionally more compelling. So we're constantly trying to figure out, do you want to hear from somebody in the world today? Do you want to hear from a New York Times reporter? Do you want to hear from them both and weave them back and forth? Reporters talking about stories they've written, stories they're working on. Exactly. You a reporter, you've known they do that all the time. But it's one thing to do it at the bar yep. or wherever. Another thing to do it on air, knowing this is going to go out. Do you have to convince people, no, this is a good thing, you should do it, or does everyone get it now? Everyone gets it now. Everyone gets it. The feedback that you get from being a storyteller in audio is so profound and and, and the volume of it is so significant that the minute a journalist has been on the show at the Times, they want to come back on, by and large. We're going to take a quick break now so we can hear a word from Ericsson. Today's special live show is sponsored by Ericsson, who's driving the future of communication with 5G networks. 5G isn't just a step up from 4G. It's a game-changing advancement that's up to 100 times faster. It's ultra-reliable, which means it could connect much more than phones and tablets. With 5G, all kinds of devices will communicate with us and each other to enable incredible things. You can imagine a doctor using a robot to perform a medical procedure in another country. Or you can imagine a robot that can let that doctor feel shapes and textures with lightning speed response time. Or you can imagine an entertainment system in your self-driving car that rivals your home theater. Be careful. Imagine your phone has a battery life of days or even years. No more clunky portable chargers. The future looks great because of Ericsson and 5G. Find out how 5G will transform the world at ericsson.com slash 5G. That's ericsson with two S's dot com slash 5G. And now we're going back to Joe's Pub to hear more from Michael Barbaro. Journalists talking about their stories it was the premise of a lot of video projects. Yes. Did not work. Live versions of it, taped versions of it. The Times has spent a ton of time and a ton of money trying to figure out video, more or less without success. They've done some cool projects, but they don't have a hit like this. Why do you think this works in audio and video has frustrated the Times and, and everyone else, by the way? I don't understand video, so I should just say that. I, I don't, it's, not a, it's not a business or a journalism that I have involved enough in to say why it does or doesn't work. I can just say that as, as somebody who's been on television and thinks about television, what's really special about a show like The Daily, there's two parts, I wanna break it down. Um, one is that audio on demand on your phone means that you can load it 
at home, get on the subway, you can listen to it in your car on a long drive. Wherever you are, it's with you, and it's intimate, and it's small, and it's, it, it, your eyes can be doing what they do during the day. You can be on the subway. But it is demanding. It, takes your, it requires you to pay attention. Otherwise but you don't need to be get... stationary in, right. front of a, in front of a television or in front of a, a screen. And I think that's very liberating for people. I think that's part of the reason why on-demand podcasting is, is a success in the case of The Daily. Uh, and then I forgot the second half of my point. That's right. I could bam for a while when you think about it. You mentioned business. What do you? And you're not on the business side, but do you have a sense of sort of what the Times' ambition for the Daily is? Is it we want this to be popular, and then we're going to run ads against it, and we'll make money that way? It's we want to convince people to get subscriptions by listening to the Daily. We want people who already subscribe to the Times to find another reason to enjoy listening to the Times, and we'll, we'll retain more of them. I believe it's all of the above. We want to be a part of a company that attracts young people to develop lifelong habits with the New York Times. And if that habit for my parents and maybe for yours was the New York Times arriving in the blue bag on the doorstep. On Sunday. It, on Sunday or on the rest of the week, I still get the print subscription. I'm grateful to all of you who get the print subscription still because it really does help pay the bills. Um, now it might be the podcast. It might be the daily on your screen. So, so one thing we do is we get people excited about the times. We create intimate relationships with reporters that we hope are very valuable and make people want to pay for the content. But the biggest thing we do is we just we give the journalism a new avenue for people to consume it. And therefore, we kind of extend the brand and its values. This was a hit out of the gate, right? You launched beginning of February? We launched in February right after the inauguration. And you could feel it immediately. I think we could feel pretty quickly that people were craving the kind of really rich, explanatory narrative journalism that we were doing, and the numbers started to grow pretty quickly. And as the news changed and got more and more complicated and confusing, we saw our audiences responding to our attempts to just really peel back the onion and also put like, I'd say we do two things that I think matter in this moment, and Samantha talked about the challenges of this moment, the scale of news under this presidency, I think the most important thing we do is we start a story at the beginning and we get you through to the end. So much journalism is about kind of an incremental understanding of what yes. changed between yesterday and today. A lot of us don't really understood where yesterday Almost none was. Almost of us do. I find it's mostly the reporters and their where editors who the, know this is the, the incremental story? change. What's, what's, what is Boko Haram? Why do we pay income taxes? Like Some of the most basic questions we ask at The Daily and we're we're giddy about it because we feel liberated to ask those questions are why I think listeners really care about the show. And the second thing is, is that it's, it's pretty soulful storytelling. It's narratives that have a human being at the center of them. And I wouldn't say The Daily ever sets out to make people cry, but we cry so much in the studio when we're having conversations with the people we talk to that we know inevitably some of our listeners are going to be crying as well. And the combination of explanatory journalism and really emotional narrative journalism is, I think, what makes The Daily so special. The last one where I could sort of imagine you crying, wrong way to put it, was the interview with the uh, gun store owner in Virginia. I don't think I cried during that interview. But you could sort of see sort of the kind of accusing right. you of crying, but you could sort of see the emotion welled up. It was a straight factual story. Yeah. Why do you sell guns? Turns out you sold guns that were used in this mass murder. You still sell yeah. them. I sort of feel your jaw dropping right. as you're going through the interview. And we had a, we had a we had a man on the on the telephone. And by the way, I think I think what's not discussed enough is the power of getting someone on the telephone. When I think about what you're willing to say to someone on the phone in your life, I think about what makes some of the conversations we have so powerful. I, it was just occurring to me backstage actually that 
there's something about that medium and it's the opposite of video, right? Like when you have a video screen in front of you and I'm sitting there with it with you, it's very hard to feel some of the feelings you feel when you're on the phone with someone for two hours really talking. And that was an interview with the owner of a gun store. That gun store owner happened to sell the gun to the Virginia Tech shooter. All of us really wanted to ask him some very straightforward questions. What is it like to sell a gun used in a mass murder? But above all, we wanted him to be a human being telling the story of what it means to be a gun shop owner. What do you care about? What do you wake up in the morning thinking about? What was your reaction to selling this gun? And along the way, he told us a bunch of other stories that blew our minds. No pun intended. He sold a gun to a woman who walked out of the store and killed right. herself. And how do you even process that? And said he that? didn't feel bad about it because she would have killed herself some other way. He had very complicated yeah. reactions to all these things. And the most important feedback I think we got about that episode was, I n was from listeners, including a 17-year-old girl who wrote to us to say, I never thought I wanted to hear from a gun shop owner who, who could have been in this chain, in this link, in this kind of horrible thing. But I, I now completely understand where he's coming from, at least. And that's something. Uh, one thing that struck me about that episode in particular is you post-Trump, you had a lot of uh, journalists doing a lot of soul-searching, saying, we've really got to get out there into the country right. and put on our pith helmets and go interview real people. And I think they all meant well. Um, I don't know how many of them are doing it. Um, I think a lot of them are. Yeah. It, it strikes me that when you guys are doing an interview with a gun shop owner, that for a lot of daily listeners, that's the first gun shop owner I think that's they've right. talked to. I are you right. making a point of saying we want to bring people to the New York Times audience the New York Times audience would not encounter some other way? Yeah, and if, and if that means bringing different people to the New York Times audience, if it means the New York Times audience changes, that would be wonderful too. Launched the show in February right after the inauguration. How much of, of your thought process goes into Trump and how much Trump stuff you can do and whether or not you're doing too much Trump stuff? I think I started listening to you probably during Comey. Yep. Um, you, guys, you guys had amazing reporters who were breaking news and telling stuff, right. it's, it's astonishing stuff. And only afterwards did I think, oh, I'd like to hear stuff that's not Trump-related. Right. It's a constant debate and balance that we discuss on the show. If we made the show about Trump every day, I think the power of the individual stories would be really diminished. Um, we hear from listeners who say, I don't want to hear the president's voice on your show anymore. That's not a debate we're willing to have. And then we hear from listeners who say, I want to better understand this president. Can you find us more ways of exploring it? And, and I think one of the challenges is to not get lazy and to just run audio of either the president talking or the president's critics talking, of doing the one side, the other side. Our goal in episodes like what we did on James Comey is to find the people in the middle of a story and get them to tell a story you've never heard before. I think we did that with, with James Comey because the saga of James Comey in many ways goes back a decade or more to understanding right. who he is, what motivates James Comey, why has he made the decisions he has. He, it turns out he's, according to our journalism, he's super self-conscious and aware of what the world thinks of James Comey and the institutions he runs and has, has made decisions that you can trace back to some of those kind of approaches to the way the world saw him in the FBI. Uh, the last amazing thing I heard from you guys was Monday. Bill O'Reilly, your reporters who broke yes. the last settlement story. You sent them with a recorder uh, to go talk. Right. They were going to go talk to Bill O'Reilly anyway. And you said, take this device and get an extra well, so good here's podcast So here, I need to be really candid about yeah. this. Emily Steele, who's a remarkable reporter at the Times, who's, who's broken an extraordinary number of, of stories about Bill O'Reilly and has convinced many of the women who accuse him of sexually harassing them to talk on the record, which takes so much courage. 
she came to us and said, we are going to do an interview with Bill O'Reilly. Don't tell anyone. And she said, could I have a high quality mic? She wanted to do it. She knew high this would be reporter. audio that would be good yep. for the podcast. And that's a wonderful development in our world that journalists feel that this is being integrated into their process of storytelling. And they brought a recorder and they brought a big kind of fancy recorder and called the Zoom into that interview. And around the time that that they thought the interview was over and Bill O'Reilly thought the interview was over. They turned the off button on that microphone. You could literally hear it in the episode. Off went the microphone. But Emily Steele and Mike Schmidt, who's a, another reporter at the Times who has broken a lot of stories uh, on this and other st subjects, they both had their iPhones still recording. Not secretly, they just, Bill O'Reilly didn't know it. And when he thought the interview was over, he started to get louder and louder. Because he was basically mute slash unresponsive for most of the, the yes. interview. And then the re he thinks the interview's over. Right. He thinks he's off the record, and I the, guess. Right, and the curses fly, and he's very angry, and he's, he's telling them to think about his children and what they're going to be going through, and he calls the whole thing crap. And we played that in the show, and we talked about what that was like for the two reporters to be there. It's astonishing, and if you guys haven't heard it, you should hear it, because it, it, there's sure there's a reference to it in the Time Story. I'm sure the Time Story quotes from it. But until you hear Bill O'Reilly speaking as Bill O'Reilly without a filter, right. thinking that no one is recording him, you cannot understand what he's talking about and, and, right. and that anger he has. Yeah, the human voice got. doesn't lie, whether it's a, whether it's a, you know, a worker at a ball-bearing factory who is crushed by the loss of her job, or it's President Trump being himself, or it's Bill O'Reilly. You know, there's such a power in the lack of a visual distraction in just hearing the voice and hearing someone think out loud. And I, I, think, I think that's why we're living in this golden age of, of audio and podcasting. And I didn't understand it until I got into it either. It was very new to me. I didn't listen to a lot of podcasts, but now I appreciate all the power that resides yeah. in the truth we tell with our voice. You are a famous person now, famous-ish person. Now, do you get recognized? I don't believe that. I think you do. <laughs> I do, I get recognized once in a while, and it's a little disorienting, because I think we think of audio as... Your picture is not on top of the no, iTunes icon, but people no, are Googling you. but I'm you vain enough to have a, you know, a t curated Twitter photo. Yeah. So you, yeah. Just doesn't, well, it's the, I think journalists, right, you, you like bylines, right? Pe people, we, we like being recognized for our work, but that's different than going to a bodega and being recognized. That's not happening. That's not happening? Bodega? Where, 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 where do you get recognized? In the New York City subway. Like, we live in the capital of, of podcasting, and lots of people in New York City listen to the show and so once once in a while and within the new york times culture which has traditionally been we're the new york times we're the institution if we help you build a career but right. you're subservient to the times probably phrasing that wrong what is that like to sort of be someone who's <laughs> used to working for the institution you sound like now, my therapist be successful but not too successful not too successful uh, but I, or a mother have you sort of had a discussion with your editors no, or I think co-workers that I, I, about that i think i think i think what you've just said reflects a slight misunderstanding in the chronology and the growth of reporters as stars in their own right i think that started a long time ago with the bylines and with names that we all grew up reading, R.W. Apple, Adam McGurney, Maureen Dowd, they were breaking the mold of what it meant to be a star reporter with the voice that they used in their writing. And then television happened. And a lot of my colleagues are such compelling storytellers in that medium as well. And I, I don't know how they balance it all, but they do. They are writing a story, breaking it on their way to the television studio where they're on a show and then they're back at the office or they're home reporting. This is the classic Maggie Haberman uh, kind of life story 
working nonstop and being a master of, of all those different mediums. So there were many generations of, of those stars before me, and I think there will be a lot more after me. I talked to Dean McKay at one of these events, uh, and he said, we want to put pictures of our journalists next to their byline. Oh, that's interesting. We want to lean into that, but that was that's last spring, me. and it, it hasn't happened yet. That's a lot of real estate in a story. It seemed like, but he had a whole theory for why that would be good and help sort of validate the journalism. I'll tell you one thing it yeah. would be good for. It's funny. I heard Samantha Bee say that she doesn't look at her mentions on Twitter, which I have no such self-control. Um, but if you saw the people photo... People can at you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm very sensitive to, to the criticism. And uh, if, you have, if you had the photo of a journalist, I think we would get a smaller volume of some of the feedback we get because we're human beings. And I think, although Samantha's on television, so I guess she would know better what it means to actually <laughs> have your image out there. So it might not change all the negative feedback, but I, I'm struck sometimes by people's inability to see that the journalist is just a person. Yeah, because you're this disembodied thing, right? I, I think audio is changing that. I have other questions for you, but I want to open this up to you guys if you have questions. There's a couple microphones. Don't be shy. Michael will talk. There's a question right here. First of all, I want to say that the, the last time I think I cried listening to The Daily was the Rohingya story last week, which was Thank you for listening just to remarkable. Really heartbreaking piece about what our reporter, uh, who's been in Myanmar, described of the refugees he's spoken, including a, yeah, including a soldier you know, killing a baby. Right. That was just... Like almost yeah. the pull over the car kind we of had thing. A we had a debate about, about how we could tell that story without basically shocking people. And so we asked my colleague who told that story to sort of to, to warn people, you know, to say, before I tell you the story, I'm going to tell you a story that's going to kill a part of you forever. All right. Well, it was, it was very memorable. The other thing is I heard you last week on long form. And now you're out here tonight. I'm just wondering, is this a conscious thing? Are you doing press on purpose to try no. to drum up support, or it's just coincidence? <laughs> support for Michael begged me to come on stage. I, I didn't. Uh, no, no. I think people are really interested in, in. I think people are really interested in the daily right now, and they're interested in how journalism is done. And I think we're really game to talk about it because we want people to listen to what we do. We work really long hours, and we care about the stories, and we want to get as many people to listen as possible. No, this is not a press tour. Okay. Well, Peter, it's, it's a real treat to have Michael on yeah, top no, of Yeah, no, I thought so. Let me be clear. I, so. I asked Michael, and he said yes, and I'm delighted he came. Questions? Okay, here. Up here, back here. Uh, great, thank you. Um, so, first of all, it's very strange to meet the man who talks to me in my shower every morning. In the shower. <laughs> so, here's what I want to say. There's only one thing I've not been told people do the daily to. I'll let you be the judge. Well, I'll, I'll say that's true here also. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, something I've noticed in the shower is uh, that there's a, there's a real variety of pieces, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I got hooked during the heady days of the ACA repeal efforts where you were talking to reporters in the Senate gallery, breaking yeah. you know, news merely hours old. And then you've had these you know, beautiful long-form pieces on opioids and Myanmar and guns. Where do you see that headed? Uh, you know, do, you, do you sort of have a vision of what the daily is going to look like in six months or a year? Uh, you know, is there a particular direction you personally would like to take it? Well, first of all, thank you very much for listening in the shower. Um, I have so many more questions about that, but I, I'm going to answer. <laughs> just answer your, your question. I think that um, the news dictates a lot of 
what we're capable of being in any moment. And if there's a lot of news like what's happening um, right now in Myanmar or activity with the tax bill in, in the Congress, we feel really compelled to deal with big breaking stories. I mean, the, the promise we have with a listener every day is that we're going to tell you what, what you need to know. And candidly, we're, we're constantly debating what the definition of need to know is. We increasingly believe that what you need to know is the human story of what it's like to lose your job in a factory in Indiana. We think you need to know what's going on inside the North Korean nuclear program, even if something didn't happen that day. And sometimes, if we just have a really powerful story to tell, we think you need to know that just as much as you need to know what the president said. And so we recalibrate that all the time. But if there is a big story, like a James Comey, which, which absolutely you know, blew up our show that week and probably for the next week after, then we will always favor that. Big fan of the show, and uh, you know, I don't listen in the shower, but I do listen every morning. Um, I think that one of the challenges that your team probably faces inevitably is um, figuring out in this immense amount of stories in the Trump administration and everything else, which to focus on and um, what will be most impactful for your listeners and for the millions of people that are out there trying to figure out what to focus on for the day. So I'd be interested in hearing how your team kind of sorts through the noise and what you focus on first and foremost in terms of uh, what the daily is about sure. each day. So I just want to say that the three people in front of you are very involved in all of this. And um, Lindsay Garrison there, who made the extraordinary um, episode <laughs> about, about Shannon, who um, the ball bearing plant, Lisa Tobin, who's executive editor of NYT Audio, and Samantha Hennig, who's our editorial director. Um, the Daily is, I mean, truly, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed at the assumptions that I am making a lot of these decisions um, because we brainstorm constantly. We, we can spend two hours or more just thinking through, you know, what this show should be, what a segment should sound like. I think what you hear in the show and the quality that you pick up on is a really obsessive approach to, you know, what are the questions we're gonna ask? Does this reporter have the right information? If they don't, can we really beg them to go out and just do a little bit of thinking about something that we wanna push them to be thinking about because it might not be something they're actually reporting on? And so all those elements, you know, is the reporter available? Is the story powerful for audio? Is there a lot of sound out there that we can play with? I mean, that's a reality for us is, you know, if, if there's congressional testimony, we're such geeks. We watch a lot of congressional testimony. We watch a lot of speeches that you, we watch so you don't have to. And we want to find a way to incorporate that. That's very central because the reason you're going to understand something and feel it's urgent and real is, is, is because there's sound there. And so that all goes into the decision making. So it's not just the story, it's how can we tell the story? Can the story work in audio? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be a pretty dry show if two reporters, a guest and, and I, me, were just sitting there talking at each other. And so production value is really, really yep. important to us. Carol, let's not do the two reporters talking show we were talking about. <laughs> we talk about the, you know, the, the, the sort of crippling yeah. reality of, of the kind of boring two-way, as it's called. It was ne you would never let that happen. <laughs> One last here. Um, hi, uh, I'm a big fan. I've also cried listening to The Daily Thank you many for times. 
Um, one episode I cried at was the assisted suicide episode where um, Lindsay Garrison. They're in, whereas actually in at this living wake as yeah. this person died, and you listen to them die, yeah. and it was just so powerful. And I was thinking during that episode and during several others that are clearly accompanying these like big sort of prestige times pieces that are mm -hmm. really deeply reported and. Are you working with the reporters early on to give yes. them audio training and for ambient sound? And how is that kind of like, how have you communicated that across the organization? And what's that process like? We try to link up as early as possible with those big pieces of journalism. And the editors who edit those kinds of stories are very specialized. The journalists are very skilled. And we try to talk to them. In some cases, in the case of the assisted suicide story, I believe we were talking to them um, maybe a couple months ahead of time and there was actually somebody from the video department at the time who so was collecting audio that whole time we worked with her and and so yeah we, we, we you can't you can't wait till a story comes in and say oh could you go I mean especially in a story like that you need to be really present and so we have to coordinate a lot that was that was a story that absolutely devastated everybody who touched it I mean, we can't even, we can, th that episode, we, d we almost don't talk about it unless we're in a place where we know we're safe enough to sort of be emotional because it was so profound. So I'm so glad you liked it. When, when a new Times reporter gets their first A1 story, they get a plate, right? That's what, true. What, 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 is, what, what do you get for your first uh, daily podcast feature? Pat on the back. You guys need a tchotchke or something. <laughs> we have some merchandise that we're developing. Okay, we'll work on that. And I think, and I'm totally, totally pushing this now. But I think Samantha House, eventually you can go to the New York Times store and get some of this merchandise. All right. We're, we always try to break news here, so we've broken important <laughs> merchandising big, news. Big important news. Michael, this is great. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Michael Barbaro for coming on the podcast. He was great. Um, that was a really good live event. We really like doing these things. If you like hearing live events, I have good news for you. We did another uh, interview that same night with Sam B. You can go find that the same place you found this podcast. That's another great interview. And if you really like seeing live stuff, I have even more good news for you. We're going to do a two and a half day. Actually, it's a day and a half event, February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California, right on the ocean there. It's a, the Code Media Conference. This is where Kara Swisher and I talk to people like Michael Barbaro and like Sam B and also people who run giant media companies like John Stanky. He's the guy who's going to run uh, Time Warner once AT&T owns it very soon. These are great events. They're great to see live. They're great networking. Um, you will learn how to improve your business and improve your career. If you want to learn more about that, go to recode.net. Meantime, for free, you can keep listening to Recode Media. Thanks to Ericsson for sponsoring both these live episodes, so they're free for you. Thanks to Cadence 13, who helps people like Ericsson come on the show. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson, my editor, Chris Basil. Thanks to Sean Cherry for making that live podcast sound great. Thank you, Sean. Thanks to you guys for listening. We will see you back next week. <laughs>